Hey guys, thank you for joining us today on Talking Scripture. Hopefully you've heard that we are now on podcasting apps. You can find Talking Scripture on Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. Can you take a minute and just rate and subscribe to our podcast? That will go a long way in helping people find us. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. Thanks for listening today. Today we're going to be talking about Jacob 1 through 4. We want to let you know right up front that Jacob 2 is going to have a few verses about plural marriage, and we are going to talk about that in depth, and a lot of that will be done later at the end of the podcast. And so we're going to go through Jacob 1 through 4 and just kind of look at the text, but then we're going to untangle some of those issues as far as how they relate to church history doctrinally at the end of the podcast. So as we start off, we read in Jacob 1 that it's been 55 years. Nephi, he's going to die, and Jacob, the younger brother, born in the wilderness, is going to share his testimony of Christ. And so here we go with Jacob 1. This is a transition from one leader to another, and as much as I love Nephi, and it breaks my heart to see him go, but it really is nice to see someone else kind of be called to a new position and how they approach their new calling. So any of us who have been called to a new calling, especially a calling of leadership, here's a great reminder to watch a prophet become a prophet and where his mind goes. So chapter one is all about that transition. It all kind of begins with 17. I want to begin here because Jacob says, he kind of goes through the whole history that Nephi's getting old and there's a new king. They decide to have a king. Nephi was anointed king. And then the next king is going to be second Nephi, third Nephi, fourth Nephi, and so on. So they're going to name all their kings King Nephi. Um, and then under the reign of King Nephi II, uh, the people are going to kind of drift and fall away that Jacob's going to have to correct. And that'll be chapter two. But After doing a little bit of a history, Jacob talks about him. So verse 17, he says, I, Jacob, gave unto them these words as I taught them in the temple, having first obtained mine errand from the Lord. So it's not a matter of what do you want to do with the Lord? What do you want to do in this calling? What do you want to do now that you're in charge? The first thing we do is, what does the Lord want you to do? I would remind everyone to walk outside every single week and look at the name on the church. It's not my church. It's not your church. It's his church. And he gets to decide what we do and how we do it. And so I love that. My first objective is to get mine errand from the Lord, to know what the Lord wants me to do. I love that we see Jacob kind of struggling Well, what is it that the Lord wants me to do? Look at verse 7. We labor diligently among our people that we might persuade them to come unto Christ and partake of his goodness. Verse 8, he wanted that all men would believe in Christ and view his death and suffer his cross and bear the shame of the world. His job as a leader is to get people to Christ. Um, Back in verse 5, because of faith and great anxiety, it truly hath been made manifest unto us concerning our people and what should come. So he's, he's earnestly seeking, what do I need to do in my calling to help these people come unto Christ and partake of his goodness? And then at the very end, verse 19, he kind of says, given that job, given that my job is to bring people to Christ and have them partake of his goodness. If I don't do that, I will hold myself and I will be held accountable for the transgressions that they commit. So verse 19, we did magnify our office unto the Lord, 
taking upon us the responsibility, answering the sins of the people upon our own heads if we did not teach them the word of God with all diligence. Wherefore, by laboring with our might, their blood might not come upon our garments, otherwise their blood would come upon our garments and we would not be found spotless at the last day. I think every leader in the church needs to kind of have that level of anxiety. He has it, doesn't he? He does. He definitely feels the weight of what he's doing here. And I find it interesting, the words that he uses, right, to describe his feelings. He has anxiety. He, He uses very interesting words that show and evoke his emotions. Yeah, look at chapter 2, verse 3. Ye know yourselves that I have hitherto been diligent in the office of my calling, but I this day am weighed down with much more desire and anxiety for the welfare of your souls than I hitherto have been. He feels that weight, and he recognizes that my job is to bring people to Christ, to help them partake. I love that wonderful list in verse 8. If all leaders of the church, if all teachers, if every sacrament speaker, if everyone who held any position in the church knew that my job is to get all men to believe in Christ and view his death and suffer his cross and bear his shame so that they can, back in verse 7, partake of the goodness of God. They need to, our job is to persuade them to come unto Christ and partake of the goodness of God. So beautiful little introductory chapter from Jacob, and now we're going to get into the meat of what his anxiety is, but I love that. My job is to get from the Lord mine errand, which is to bring people to Christ. So now what specifically does this group of people need in order to come into Christ? And that leads us into chapter two, Mike. Yeah, they're going to have their own kind of struggles. There's a lot we don't know, but I think what we see here is strong evidence that there's others In other words, if it's just Jacob getting off the boat, chapter two makes, in my mind, zero sense. The book of Jacob makes it obvious that this is a very large society and that Lehi's family is only a small portion of that. The Nephites have some technological advancements. I mean, Nephi knows how to work with metal. You don't have to believe that the Book of Mormon took place in Mesoamerica. We don't know where it took place, but at least historically in Mesoamerica— that, you know, they don't have a lot of metal technology happening here. And so the Nephites have technological advancements. They, they're literate. They get here. And then we have some of these issues with pride and distinctions and classes. And you don't really get that if you have just a few people off the boat. The way you get differentiation and, and, or class distinctions, you have to have trade. You have to have groups that you work with, big economies then you're going to get some of these issues with pride. And then the other issue that they're having is men that are more powerful have more than one wife. If you're one of those people that think that possibly this stuff's happening in Mesoamerica, it's during pre-classic Maya civilization prior to 500 BC or right around that period where these uh, stratifications start happening, where people have more wealth and they do start taking on more than one wife. And so the very things that historically are happening in at least this part of the Americas, are the very issues that Jacob's going to tackle. Brant Gardner's done some work on this, and we'll post this in the show notes. Now think about this. You're Jacob, and you have a few, a handful of men that are very politically uh, powerful. They're wealthy, and they've taken on additional families. And according to the text, their justification is they're using the brass plates to justify it. Can you imagine the, how I would have great anxiety? Yeah. I mean, these guys can kill me. Yeah. 
They're no slouch. Not every guy is going to have this more than one wife situation. These are the most powerful among them. And Jacob's going to go right for the jugular. And so that's going to be his approach. We're going to do the plural marriage stuff at the end of the podcast, but just know that that's happening. Another couple interesting things too is there's a verse 13 of chapter one where they kind of distinguish, you know, who are the Nephites and who are the Lamanites. And quite simply, what Jacob's basically going to say is, if you join our group, you're a Nephite. If you follow our doctrine and our, our not, group of— Not even join, if you're friendly to. He right. says, those who are friendly to Nephi, I call Nephites. Yes. And those who seek to destroy the Nephites are Lamanites. Right. So clearly there's other people there. There has to be. Because how in the world could they—Nephi says they had wars. How in the world could just Lehi's family be having wars? And where did these women come from that they're marrying? And how does Sherem possibly not know Jacob? I mean, the book of Jacob makes it obvious that this is a very large society and that Lehi's family is only a small portion of that. But they seem to accept Jacob and Nephi as— their leaders, that this large group is more than, you know, they seem to have united under Nephi's leadership. And so now Jacob, as the prophet, not as the king, but as the prophet, is going to kind of sway, try and and influence them. But that's fascinating that it's not, you know, anyone who's friendly to the Nephites are now called Nephites, and anyone who wants to destroy them are now called Lamanites, not just descendants of Nephi and Laman. Yeah. I'm a bit of a Bible nerd. And it's interesting to see what the prophets have issue with in the Old Testament versus the prophets in the Book of Mormon. In the Old Testament, it's worshiping these other gods and, quote, whoring after these other gods. And yet with the Nephites, it's chasing wealth. And I did a word search on just the warnings about their wealth, and it's tied to their apparel. Over and over again, it talks about they're lifted up in the costliness of their apparel. And you don't have to believe that the Book of Mormon took place in Mesoamerica. We don't know where it took place. But at least historically in Mesoamerica, that was the way they transported their wealth. It was in their clothes. And I've even you know, re- researched a little bit on this, the tribute list. Like when you, when you taxed a city, like let's say my city beat up Bryce's city. And I'm like, Bryce, you got to pay me taxes. Well, in the ancient Near East, we levied you silver and gold. Well, in the Americas, they leveled clothing and articles of jewelry. And so if Bryce was a really big deal in Mesoamerica, he would have this really cool outfit with jade sewn into it and all kinds of embroidery. And that was kind of the way that they demonstrated their wealth and their power. And so we'll see this all throughout the text. I don't think necessarily we apply it this way. I don't think if you wear a nice suit, it means that you're full of pride. But that was the way that they saw pride. The real issue here, um, Jacob, too, in my opinion, Bryce, is pride. So why don't you talk about pride and unpack this a little bit? So let's see if we can define it. One of the beautiful things about the Book of Mormon is it does a wonderful job at defining what is and isn't the problem. Because pride is very, very misunderstood. If I'm a proud American, am I sinning? If I'm proud of my children, am I sinning? When does pride become the problem? And so to me, one of the great contributions of the Book of Mormon is Jacob chapter 2, verse 13. In one single verse— he seems to define the very issue of pride. Ready? Look at verse 13. Now, if you were to boil down the beginning, that right, the switch point, right there, that's where pride is born. That just gave birth to pride in your heart. What's the word? More and abundantly? I would, would that I would be it? I would suggest it's not abundant. It's not abundant. It's not, pride isn't born because we have lots of something. Mm-hmm. But notice the word more. I would suggest, brothers and sisters, that the birth of pride 
is more. Because that's the comparison. Pride is born not when I have something, but when I have more of it. And that's that wonderful C.S. Lewis quote that so many people like to quote, that pride gets nothing out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We're not proud of being rich. We're proud of being rich-er, prettier, more talented. And it's that comparison that makes us pride. It's not I have more. Sometimes it's you have more. And pride is a matter of envy and jealousy and saying, well, he has more. So go to the very end of verse 13. What happens when you have more of something? So word number one is more. Word number two is at the very end of the verse. Because you have more, you think you're better. So more leads to better. And then better leads to persecution and lifting up. Those three words seem to suggest right there is where pride shows itself. That's where pride is in your heart. That when you have more, you think you're better, therefore you persecute. Now, sometimes that persecution comes in the form of physical persecution. Other times it's mocking or taunting, and it's my way of persecuting. Sometimes it's just throwing it into every conversation. I have a dear friend who has a more, and every single time I have a conversation with that person, he throws that into the conversation somehow. Sometimes we do it and we don't like it about ourselves. Like maybe I'll drop something, a name, and then I'm like, why did I do that? Have you ever ever caught yourself doing that? You're like, dang it. There's my more. I have more of this. Therefore, I think I'm better, and I'm going to constantly drop that little hint into the conversation to make sure you know that I'm better. Now, if you think about all the possible mores, clearly some people take pride in having more money, or we see a lot of people take pride in having more education. I'm better than you because I went to school longer than you did. Or sometimes it's I have more of a house, or sometimes it's my children are more successful than your children. My children are doctors and lawyers, and your children aren't. Have you seen the bumper sticker that says my kid can beat up your kid? (laughs) Because they get sick and tired of that persecution of having more. Have have you seen the bit with Brian Regan called I Walked on the Moon? Nope. How he says, I wish that I was one of the astronauts that walked on the moon so that at any dinner party, (laughs) whenever anybody's talking about something, how cool they are, he can just drop, I I walked on the moon. (laughs) There's my more. I mean, that's a significant more. One of the dangerous things is in the church, sometimes our more is our righteousness. I have more righteousness, therefore I'm better, and we're constantly throwing that righteousness in other people's faces as our form of persecution. Sometimes it's our calling. I have had more leadership positions in the church, therefore I'm better than you. Let me tell you my resume. And I'm constantly, well, when I was a bishop, or when I was a bishop, or when I held this position, well, you're persecuting That's your form. That's pride. So, brothers and sisters, if you want to know where you're going to be proud, what's your more? What is your more? What do you have that other people don't have that's going to cause you to make the comparison? And then what do we do with it? And think you're better. Let's do antidote. Because clearly Jacob has an antidote here. But I love this idea. You know what? I'd, I'd encourage everyone to find Dr. Seuss's The Sneetches. 
and read that because that is his brilliant commentary on this silly game that we play, more, better, persecute. So the star belly sneeches think they're better because they have a star on their belly. And they won't let the other ones play at their Frankfurter roast. They won't let them play ball. You can't play with us because you don't have a star on your belly. Then up comes Sylvester McMonkey McBean that comes up with a machine to put stars on the bellies of the plain belly sneeches. And now they're all the same. But the star belly sneeches are like, "Uh uh-uh, no, we're the best. We've got to be the best. So we have to come up with a new more. And so McBean invents a machine that takes their stars off. And then as soon as they don't have a star, it's so ridiculous. As soon as they don't have a star, they now think they're better and persecute for the very thing that made the other ones worse previously. It's so dumb. And so then the rest of the day, they're all putting stars on and putting stars off, and they pay $10 every single time. And in the end, there's only one person who wins this silly game. This is a dumb game. The dude in the business selling all this this stuff. This is the dumb game that no one wins. And so finally, the last page, it says, you know, when McBean packed up and went and he laughed as he went, you can't teach a sneech. And then Dr. Seuss writes, but McBean was quite wrong. I'm quite happy today that the sneeches got quite smart on that day. The day they decided that sneeches are sneeches, and no kind of sneech is the best on the beach. When are we going to finally have that day? When we stop playing this silly game of more, better, persecute. Whether it's more money, more education, more years, age, Um, In the high school setting, seniors quite often think they're better and they persecute others because they've been there longer. We've been in the school longer than you have, therefore we're better. This is a dumb game, brothers and sisters, and no one wins. So what's the antidote? Jacob chapter 2, 17 through 20, has some marvelous little anecdotal well, you know what? Let's throw one more in. If you ever, everyone will turn to Alma chapter 15. I love this idea. Let me just preface this. Everyone turn to Alma chapter 15. Um, after the whole episode at Ammoniah that got destroyed and Zeezrom was converted, um, they were worried about pride. And so Alma says this wonderful thing in Alma chapter 15. He says that he didn't want to leave until there was a great check on their pride. This is after the episode with Ammoniah, where the city was destroyed, and clearly that was a manifestation of pride. And so Alma follows Zeezrom into Sidon, and then verse 17, Alma 15, 17, therefore, after Alma having established the church in Sidon, seeing a great check, yea, seeing that the people were checked as to the pride of their hearts. That's my phrase here. That's my goal, is if we want to avoid the problems with pride, we have to see that there's a great check on, our, on the pride of our hearts. So let's go back to um, Jacob chapter 2, and Jacob's going to give us a whole lot of checks on our pride. So here's how we can check our pride. All right, verse 17, number one, think of your brethren like unto yourselves. In other words, if I have a tendency to focus on my more, and that leads to pride, the antidote is to find a more in other people. 
What is there more? And then you could accentuate it and say, hey, I really notice this about you. I like this about you. In other words, you're seeing their value. And it's not that competition. It's not that I'm better than you. Now, you could even do that in a prideful way. Well, you have this, and that makes you better than me. As soon as you've gone more, better, persecute, you've crossed the line. But one of the antidotes is to see the good in other people. Because then we're less likely to compare and think we're better. Let me give you a cross-reference. Everyone turn to Mosiah chapter 9, verse 1. When Zenith was sent as a spy among the Lamanites. Now, spies are supposed to look for weaknesses so I can destroy you. And that's what we sometimes do is we walk into church looking for someone's weakness so I can destroy them. We look at each other and we look for weaknesses so we can destroy them. But then there's this beautiful phrase at the end of verse 1, but when I saw that which was good among them, I did not desire that they should be destroyed. It's a great verse. It's a beautiful verse. And so do that to check your pride. When I saw that which was great among them, I didn't want to think I was better than them, and I didn't want to persecute them. So be, think of your brethren like unto yourselves. Sometimes we have that, don't we, where we, we see, my, you know, my mom used to say this to me. She would say, just because someone's light is bright doesn't mean your light doesn't matter. But we live in a world where we're, it's so competitive. You know, we come from heaven, and the Lord sends us to this world where everything is so competitive, and we're like scrapping for it. And the Lord's like, no, it's okay that they have light. You know, I really appreciate the skill set that you have. And I know that you and I teach a little different, but it's great, right? And same thing in a marriage. Have you ever seen this where married couples compete for who's working hardest? Right. And I just think that the Who's Lord, the better parent? Yeah, who's better or who's more tired? Who's more exhausted today? Yeah. And so there's a great example of not finding that or looking for that more in other people, because when we see that more, we don't want to destroy them. We're, we, we're grateful for what they are. Okay, back to Jacob 2, a couple more. Um, I love the the rest of verse 17. Be familiar with all and free with your substance, that they may be rich like unto you. So the idea here is I want you to have what I have. If I have more. Now look at look at verse 19. And this kind of leads us into the next major antidote. If you have obtained a hope in Christ, you'll seek for riches with the intent to do good, to clothe the naked, to feed the hungry, to liberate the captive, to administer relief to the sick and the afflicted. In other words, if you have a more, guess why you do? Guess why God gave you a more? It's so that you could bless everyone, be familiar with all, free with your substance, let them have something that you have, bless them, use your more to bless people. Make the world awesome. If you have more money, then give some of that money to someone who doesn't have any. If you have more time, if, if you understand math, if you're the kid in math class who gets it, then guess what? The reason the Heavenly Father gave you that ability to get math is rather than poking fun of the people in the class or rubbing it in their nose that you understand math and that they don't and that you got the A on the test, why not help them? Use your more to bless other people, to bring them happiness. Um, number three is back in verse 18, kingdom of God. You got to set your priorities. When your priorities are straight, this seems like a silly game. 
because God's priority is to give everything he has to everyone who will take it and wants it. He has no distinction. Clearly, God could play the more, better, persecute game better than anyone else, couldn't he? But he doesn't. And he never does. You know what this reminds me of, Bryce? This reminds me of our conversation we had in the podcast where we talked about 2 Nephi 28. And Nephi says, oh, you silly Gentiles, look at all the silly games that you play. And then as we were talking, you made the point, you're like, Mike, do you see what we're doing? If you understand two things, if you understand who you are and you see who God is, the games look really silly. That's right. And I think that Jacob gets it. He's He knows who God is. He knows who he is. And I see Jacob looking at these people saying, you're collecting jade trinkets. You're weaving them in your clothes. You're laying tribute on other people of clothing. And now, I, d- does he know our day? I, I don't know. But let's just pretend. Let's pretend that Jacob sees 2020. And he's like, this jade doesn't matter. Can you see God in the heavens saying, you're chasing whatever it is, your pride thing, what you're more, whatever you're more you're is. You're so great because you're driving around in that fancy car yeah. and yet resurrected being snap their <laughs> finger and they're wherever they want to yes, go. I just, it's, it's hilarious, it's, but it's sad, That's right? right? Because when you think about it, this pride is going to ruin them. Yeah. And so, you know, I poke fun at it, but it's really serious business. Yeah. But the antidote here is kingdom of God. When your priority is the kingdom of God, loving God, loving Christ, putting God and Christ first in your life will naturally cause you to think this is a silly game and to not play the I'm better than you game. You will want what God wants, and that is that everyone has everything that God has. So let me give you a fourth one. So we've got find their more, use your more to bless people's lives. Make sure your priority is kingdom of God first, and then you won't play this silly, more, better, persecute game. And then the fourth one, I love verse 20. There's such a little dig here from Jacob, and it's just kind of embarrassing when you think about it, taking pride in the things that we do. Verse 20, and now, my beloved, my brethren, I have spoken unto you concerning pride and those of you who have afflicted your neighbor and persecuted him because you were proud in your hearts of the things which God hath given you. It's not even yours. It's like you're taking pride in something that was given to you. Are you kidding me? How are you better than them because he gave it to you? And that's such a marvelous attitude to say, my more, my abundance, what I have more than anyone else is because of a gracious God who happened to give it to me and could easily have given it to someone else. So a dear friend of mine shared a dream he had once that changed my life and just I love this dream, and I love the man who shared it with me. He had a dream once that he was a peasant back in medieval times, sitting on a cobblestone road in the middle of the road, and he was in filthy peasant rags, and no one wanted to pay attention to him because he was a peasant. But then horns announced the coming of the king. So they brushed the peasant off the street to make room for the important king that was coming. As the king approached, he stopped in front of the peasant, and he got out of his carriage, and he lifted up the peasant, and he took a little jewel from his crown, and he handed it to the peasant, and he said, hold this up. And the peasant held up the king's jewel, and it began to glow bright, 
brilliant light started to come out of that, that jewel. And in the light of the king's jewel, he was not wearing rags anymore. He was dressed like the king. They saw the king through the light of his jewel. And when the peasant was all of a sudden dressed like a king, all of the townsfolk began to bow the knee and want to worship the peasant. And that was the end of the dream. And all of a sudden I realized I am nothing but a peasant to whom God has given a jewel. And if the world sees me in the light of that jewel and wants to worship me or thinks I'm better, it really is a silly thing to take credit because I am just a peasant holding a jewel that the, that the king gave me. So those are some great antidotes to pride. Find their more. What do they have that makes them great? Use your more to bless their lives. Make sure your priorities are aligned with God's priorities and you won't play this silly game. And then just remember that everything that we have, everything that we have a natural tendency to take pride in, to say, I have more of this, therefore I'm better and start to persecute others, is simply something that God gave me. I am just a beggar. So that's kind of Jacob's message on pride. I think he does a wonderful job helping us see it and uh, some antidotes that will overcome it. So one of the things that's going to lead them into, because they have more, they're increasing in wealth, is some of these men in the society are taking more wives. And so we'll address some of that later. Do you want to talk what about I some want, of this yeah, now as far as one, in the text? There's one thing I'd like to do. If you'll turn to chapter 3, verse 12, he talks about the awful consequences of these immoral behaviors. Um, so what I'd love to do is just make a little list of the words Jacob uses that describe the awful consequences if you choose to break the law of chastity. Be warned, everyone, whether you're a Latter-day Saint or not. Here are the awful consequences of misusing God's procreative powers. So back in chapter 2, we'll just kind of make a list here. How about verse 8? The misuse of procreation will wound the soul. In verse 9, it uses that word wounds four times, but then it talks about daggers piercing your soul. And anyone who has been cheated on, anyone who has been the victim of immoral behavior, any woman that's been raped, anyone that is the victim of this will tell you that it is like a dagger piercing their soul. Um, and then we end verse 9 with wounding the delicate mind. Verse 10 has the phrase broken heart in it. And nothing breaks hearts more than the loss of chastity does. When a spouse cheats on you, when a parent, when you find out that your parent is cheating, nothing breaks hearts or pierces souls or wounds more. Then if you want to jump down to verse 31, you find words like sorrow and mourning. And verse 32, cries. That's what it causes. The awful consequences of immoral behavior are often sorrow and mourning and crying. Verse 33, it captivates. And then in verse 34, it condemns. And then verse 34 is just an absolute 
powerfully written verse. Behold, you have done greater iniquities than the Lamanites, our brethren. You have broken the hearts of your tender wives. Every, every person, every man who has ever cheated and been immoral has broken the heart of her te- his tender wife, lost the confidence of your children because of your bad examples before them, and the sobbings of their hearts ascend up to God against you. And because of the strictness of the word of God which cometh down against you, many hearts died, pierced with deep wounds. Very emotional language. Very emotional language. One of the things I find interesting is the world that we live in today, everything is just kind of trivialized. The Lord is really concerned with how we get here, and he's concerned with a lot of things. But if you think about how we all get here, the veil and and crossing it and coming to earth is such an important thing. In the proclamation to the world and the family, there's this interesting phrase that says that children are entitled to birth. Within the bonds of matrimony. Within the bonds of, yeah. And, And that, to me, tells me, you know, there's not a lot of times I hear the prophets of God say that I'm entitled to anything. Uh, you know, as a parent, there have been how many times have you said this to your kids, Bryce? Hey, life isn't fair. That's right. But yet we're entitled to certain things according to modern day prophets. And one of those is a mom and a dad. I really like the way Bryce is taking you through the words that Jacob's using. Jacob is very in tune with emotions and you can feel his language. And this is an interesting thing that I want to draw out. In the book of Moses, we read, there's this passage in there where it says that Satan desires to destroy the agency of man. My understanding of agency is that I can see the choices, I have power to choose, and I can see the consequences. And in today's world with immorality, one of the things that adversary is working so hard towards is to captivate and to make people... It bind them down with captivity. And another thing I think Satan is a master at is disguising the consequences. And if you just read the words that he uses, and and I I love that, Bryce, how you went through that. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to try to put this in the show notes, just some of those words and those verses. And and I'm going to sit down and write them down. Jacob is just hammering with a billboard. He's like, here are the consequences. Here are the awful consequences. Let's throw a couple more. If you go to chapter three, he throws in three more phrases. In verse two, woe, woe unto you that are not pure in heart that are filthy this day. Verse 10, remember, ye shall remember your children how that ye have grieved their hearts. See, people say sometimes when they're being immoral, I'm not hurting anyone. Well, wrong. Nothing is more grieving to the hearts of people that love you than to be immoral. And then verse 10, because of your filthiness, you are bringing your children unto destructions. The consequences of immoral behavior are quite often felt on who? Who usually pays the price of someone's immoral behavior? A child. Yeah. It's the children. I remember a story about a friend of mine who worked on a, a cattle ranch in his youth, and the, the cows would reach through the fence and lick the grass on the other side, and it really didn't affect the cows. But in doing so, they would leave wide gaps in the fence. Now, the cow couldn't get out, but guess who did get out? The calves. Because of the mom reaching out and licking grass on the other side, 
she often lost her calves. And so, Jacob, one of the major awful consequences of breaking the law of chastity is that it brings our children unto destruction. So, just be warned. Um, these things are like fire. When fire is controlled, it is a huge blessing in our life. It heats our houses, it cooks our food, it lights us, it smells. All these wonderful things come when fire is controlled. Our cars often operate, many of our cars operate by controlled fire. We protect ourselves with controlled fire. But when fire becomes uncontrolled, out of control, it burns and destroys in a way that very few things do. That is like the power of procreation, that when it's controlled and handled appropriately, it is the biggest blessing in our life. But when it is out of control and done inappropriately, it burns and destroys. And I just, I think it's so powerful to hear Jacob talking about these awful consequences. And he really is trying to shake them. I mean, look what it says in verse 11, shake yourselves that you may awake. And so Jacob's going to use some pretty powerful language in this chapter where he's going to say, because the Nephites are obviously thinking they're hot stuff. And he basically says, oh, you think you're you're so hot? Well, the Lamanites are more righteous than you. And then he uses some pretty bold language. I'm going to read these verses. And if, the, if, if some of this stuff is troubling, go back and listen to our uh, podcast that we did with 2 Nephi 5, because 2 Nephi 5 is going to unlock a lot of this. But we'll just be brief on this as far as like, okay, getting in, into some of the depth. But look at verse... Meaning the skins. Mike's yeah, talking, this, yeah, about, talking the about the skins reference. But look at Jacob 3 verse 7. Speaking of the Lamanites, he says, their husbands love their wives and their wives love their husbands. So he's like, they're doing it right. And then he says, um, their unbelief and their hatred towards you is because of the iniquity of their fathers. Wherefore, how much better are you than they in the sight of your great creator? O brethren, I fear that unless you repent of your sins, that their skins will be whiter than yours when you shall be brought with them before the throne of God. Wherefore, a commandment I give unto you, which is the word of God, that you revile no more against them because of the darkness of their skins, neither shall you revile against them because of their filthiness, but you shall remember your filthiness and remember that their filthiness came because of their fathers. And I really like uh, the podcast we did in Second Nephi 4 where Bryce talked about that, how the Lord will give the mercies according to the conditions of the children of men. But as far as the skins go, I, I don't read this literal. We're talking about a spiritual metaphor. In other words, you think you're so righteous, and already in 55 years, you've become like the people around us. The indigenous cultures that are kind of picking up extra wives in this culture and, and amassing wealth, you're becoming like them. And Bryce, I kind of think this is our natural state of things. For example, if you and I were... Uh, you know, move to another country, we would kind of pick up some of those habits of the people of that country or the language or think about this. You know, you have teenagers. I have teenagers. Have you ever noticed that there's like new language that they're using? One of my teenage sons shared a, a new phrase that's kind of happening at the high school and it's a phrase I've never used. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense. And he's like, dad, this is what all the teenagers are saying. And so I just think that's our natural tendency. And part of what prophets do is they say, hold up a sign and they just say, hey, um, we, we have to stay within the bounds the Lord has set. And sometimes, especially in the Old Testament, we see this, prophets will shock you and, and they'll just try to get your attention. 
Let me throw in a cross-reference to what he says here in chapter 3. If you'll go to Alma chapter 9, Alma says the same thing in the wicked city of Ammoniah, kind of as a second witness. The the people of Ammoniah have become very prideful. They're the ones that are going to burn the women and children. In Alma chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, Alma says to them, Nevertheless, I say unto you that it shall be more... Well, you got to get the setting in verse 14, so maybe I'll read the verse 14. Now I would that you should remember that inasmuch as the Lamanites have not kept the commandments of God, they've been cut off from the presence of the Lord. Now we see that the word of the Lord has been verified in this thing, and the Lamanites have been cut off from his presence from the beginning of their transgressions in the land. Nevertheless, I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for them in the day of judgment than for you, if you remain in your sins. Yea, even more tolerable for them in this life than for you, except ye repent. For there are many prophecies which are extended to the Lamanites, for it is because of the traditions of their fathers that caused them to remain in their state of ignorance. Therefore, the Lord will be merciful unto them. So these Nephites are taking pride. Their more here is that we're the chosen people, that we're the chosen race, that we have the right people on our side, that we're better than you because who we are. And the prophets are saying, um, no, if you really look at them, You've got to see their more, and that the reason they've been cursed is because of the traditions of their fathers. The reason you're cursed is because you're just doing wickedly. Yeah, I just I find it interesting that what Jacob says to the Nephites here, Alma's going to say to the Nephites and Ammoniah later. And Jesus does some of this in the New Testament, doesn't he? Yep. He'll talk to a group of people and say, yeah, you're doing it wrong. You, you think you're so great. And so wherever we are in our life, we can always... Uh, look at these words, and we can check ourselves. Yeah, back to that check on yeah, pride. Before we wreck ourselves. Yeah. So the fourth chapter is Jacob talking about how the prophets have testified of Christ, big picture. Uh, they knew him, and they testified of him. And then he's going to shift gears a little bit and say things like, you know, why not speak of the atonement and attain to a perfect knowledge of him? That's Jacob 4, verse 12. And then he shifts to a very powerful question at the end of Jacob 4, a question that's going to bleed into Jacob 5. Jacob 5 is the answer to the question that Jacob asks at the end of Jacob 4. And in the original text, uh, you know, the 1830 text, 4 and 5 was one thing. Like chapter 5 was just the continuation. And we have a division here, though. And so he says, you know, we knew of Christ before Jesus came. Look in Jacob 4, 4. For this intent have we written these things, that they may know that we knew of Christ, and we have had a hope of his glory many hundred years before his coming. Not only we ourselves had a hope of his glory, but also all the holy prophets which were before us. Behold, they believed in Christ and worshiped the Father in his name, and also we worship the Father in his name. And for this intent we keep the law of Moses, pointing our souls to him. Now, I just want to bring this up. In the BC, you know, before Jesus, Old Testament prophets, they knew of El Elyon, the Most High God, and they knew of Yahweh. After the Deuteronomistic reforms, which we talked about in the podcast on uh, 1 Nephi, the major reformers changed the religion And it was this shift away from this idea of a father and a son, and it was this shift towards monotheism. And Yahweh kind of is encapsulating all the personality traits of the father. There's this great shift. But before the Deuteronomistic reforms, the prophets knew of multiple divine beings. Like, for example, in the call narrative to Isaiah, who shall go for us? That's plural, brothers and sisters. Or if you've ever read Genesis 1, right? Um, 
It talks about us, the gods. Adam and Eve have become as one of us, or in the flood narrative, let us go down. Uh, They understood this. Well, it's shifted. And Jacob's reminding them, hey, the prophets knew El Elyon. They knew the father and they knew Yahweh. And the reason why they want to kill Lehi when Lehi has to leave Jerusalem is because Lehi's teaching this idea of a God that's going to come down and die. And the Jews don't like that because their religion is reforming and they're changing the way they view Yahweh. So Jacob's reminding them, no, Moses knew who Jesus was. Now, did Moses teach that we worship the Father in the name of Jesus Christ? No. The way I read verse 4 and 5 is Joseph's translating. And so Joseph is packaging these concepts from the plates into words that 19th century Americans would understand. 19th century people who have read the Bible and believe in Jesus would understand. So, for example, in verse 5 of Jacob 4, it reads, They believed in Christ and worshiped the Father in his name, and also we worship the Father in his name. Probably on the plate text, it read something like this. They believed in Yahweh and worshiped El Elyon in his name. In other words, Lehi and his people understood that there was God or the Most High God, El Elyon, or God El, and Yahweh, the Son of God. And they worshiped the Father in the name of the Son. And Joseph is packaging these ideas and saying they worship the Father in the name of Jesus Christ. And so what Jacob is saying through this translation process is that they worshiped the Father, but they knew they would worship him in the name of the Son. And so today it reads, they believed in Christ and worshiped the Father in his name. That's the beginning of Jacob 4, verse 5. And so today we pray to the Father in the name of the Son. Now think about this in a political context. Many people would never be able to approach the king. You couldn't just walk up to the king. Even today, this, the president has a secret service. You don't just walk up to the president of whatever country you happen to live in. And from a religious context, even, and this is hard to, hard to take, but it's the truth, even our words are unworthy, like to approach the Father. So what do we do? We clothe our words in the name of the Son. And we do this with the name and the robes, like we're encircled about in the robes of the Son. He puts his robe on us. He puts his name on us. And we approach the Father. And Jesus says, Father, here's Bryce, but look at him like he's me. And so I really like this. It's a great theological teaching, and it has ritual component. It's symbolic. This is kind of why we pray to the Father in the name of the Son, right? Which is a great commentary on the law of Moses, because I think when we read the Old Testament, we get this impression that the law of Moses is this horrible thing. But here's a group of people living the law of Moses, and they got Jesus, and they loved him, and it led them to Jesus. And so clearly the law of Moses was designed to show people who Christ is and what he would do for them. And if they lived the law of Moses right, they would have found Jesus. They would have seen Jesus Just all over the, the law sacrifice. of Moses. How do you miss, yeah. how do you how do you miss, miss Jesus? Jesus in the sacrifice? But and they anyway, did. They but, did. But those who really had an eye to see saw in the law of Moses wonderful things. So maybe we ought not to be so harsh in judging the law of Moses. Yeah. I love verse 13. There's a beautiful little commentary for teachers here. Watch this little procession. Okay, behold, my brethren, he that prophesieth. Okay, that's the teacher. I'm the teacher. He that prophesieth. I need to teach to the understanding of men. So that's a commentary on how I teach. I need to teach so that my students understand it. 
I don't need to get caught up in what excites me. I need to teach to the understanding of my students. Now, if I'll do that, look at the next step. If I teach to the understanding of men, the Spirit comes, and the Spirit speaks of things as they really are and of things as they really will be. That's the only time in the, in the Book of Mormon that the word really is used. In fact, I think it's the only time in the Scriptures and the standard works that the word really is used. If the Spirit comes, the Spirit, the Spirit will show you how they really are. And I'm thinking in the life of the teacher, the student. So if I teach to the understanding of my students so that the Spirit comes, He will show my students things as they really are in their life. And that's how these things should be manifested us plainly. I just love that little commentary on how to teach. Teach to the understanding of people so that the Holy Ghost comes and tells your learners things as they really are. I really like that so much as it relates to how God meets us where we are. Yeah. I talk a lot about the messiness of scripture and like how the ancients understood things. And I'm totally okay with someone living during the bronze age, having a bronze age view of the world and yet communicating with God. This passage really hits me so hard. It's doctrine and covenant section one verse 23. And it's saying exactly what Bryce is talking about. Here it is. The fullness of the gospel might be proclaimed by the weak and the simple unto the ends of the world and before Kings and rulers. And then verse 24 of section one. Behold, I am God and have spoken it. These commandments are of me and were given unto my servants in their weakness after the manner of their understanding that they might come to an understanding. I love this on so many levels. A prophet can be a prophet and still have all kinds of views based on where he lives. To me, this gives me so much freedom, freedom to read the scriptures and see them for what they are. They're both gold and clay. They're human and they're divine. It lets me see my my religious leaders as people yet inspired. And it kind of gives me permission to not be perfect. I'm weak and I'm simple and God's going to meet me where I am. And he's always going to say, hey, Mike, step it up. There's a danger in the, going back to Jacob 4 and verse 14, the Jews did the opposite. Rather than focusing on what we understand, they wanted things that they couldn't understand and it ended up tripping them up. They kept seeking and praying for and researching things that were beyond their ability to understand, and it tripped them up. So verse 14, the Jews were a stiff-necked people, and they despised the words of plainness and killed the prophets and sought for things they could not understand. Wherefore, because of their blindness, which blindness came by looking beyond the mark, they must needs fall. For God hath taken away his plainness from them. He delivered unto them many things which they cannot understand because they desired them. That's what they went searching for. And because they desired it, God hath done it, that they may stumble. So be careful when we jump into realms that we don't understand, because that often becomes a way of getting tripped up. God speaks to the understanding of that man. And what he said to over here, to the understanding of that group of people, may not get you to the Spirit and to plainness, may actually trip you up. So I love those two verses back to back, Mike. And so we need to make sure that we read Scripture to the understanding of those who received it. Yeah. My favorite kind of scholarly commentaries are those men and women of great faith who can take a very difficult thing and speak and make it 
understandable to like the common person. And I feel like as a teacher, if I'm geeking out on something and I'm the only one in the room that gets what's being talked about, I'm probably doing it wrong as a teacher. And as a parent, that's why we have to teach children simply and we kind of bring them along. And that's quite frankly why the missionary discussions are quite simple. As a teacher of mission prep, I always tell the the young people, hey, we've got to keep it really simple. People haven't heard this stuff. And so the first time they get it, you got to keep it simple. The question here at the end, Bryce, is so powerful. So I'm going to read these verses and we're just going to kind of beat up this question and talk about what it is Jacob's doing. I really feel like this is such an important question. To me, this is kind of one of those big golden threads that's woven throughout the tapestry of the Book of Mormon. So here it is, verse 15. And now I, Jacob, am led on by the Spirit unto prophesying, for I perceive by the workings of the Spirit which is in me that by the stumbling of the Jews, they will reject the stone upon which they might have uh, might build and have safe foundation. He's quoting Isaiah right there. But behold, according to the scriptures, this stone, this is going to be Jesus, the foundation stone, this stone shall become the great and the last and the only sure foundation upon which the Jews can build. And now, my beloved, how is it possible that these, the Jews, after having rejected the sure foundation, Jesus, can ever build upon it, the stone, which is Jesus, that it, the stone, the foundation stone, which is Jesus, may become the head of their corner. Behold, my beloved brethren, I will unfold this mystery unto you. If I do not by any means get shaken from my firmness in the spirit and stumble because of my over anxiety for you. And so the question is verse 17. And I really think there's at least two ways to read the verse. On one level, I think what Jacob's asking is, is there hope? If the Jews reject Jesus, can they ever build on this foundation? Can they ever build a life on Christ? Is there any hope? Put more simply, will God love me if I mess up? A second question I think that he's asking is this. If the Jews reject Christ, what are they going to do? How are they going to build their foundation? What could possibly happen? Now, I don't want to give it away because we're going to do it next time with Jacob 5, but the allegory of the olive tree is really addressing those two questions. And on a simple level, Jacob is just, I think he just is burning in his bones with, yes, the Lord will do his work and he will find us. And it's a beautiful allegory where he illustrates how God will fix broken things. I have a testimony that we believe in a God who loves things that are broken. Over and over and over again in that allegory, he's going to say, it grieveth me to lose the vineyard. It grieveth me to lose this tree. I'm not going to lose this tree. And once you begin to see his manner, his character, and the kind of person he is, it makes it a whole lot easier to answer that question when you're the one that's messed up. Can I ever come back? Can I ever be loved again by God? Well, let's see his character and how he relates to this tree. And yes, you'll answer that question well. So looking forward to Jacob chapter five, Mike. Awesome. So here we go. Jacob two, verse 30, is that verse that we kind of alluded to. The standard is one man, one wife. But Jacob two thirty says, for if I will say it, the Lord raise up seed unto me, I will command my people. Otherwise they shall hearken unto these things. And these things is one man, one wife. But there were a percentage of Latter-day Saints who lived this 38 years of church history. It was a public thing where this happened. Was it everybody? Certainly not. Did it happen? Yes. Um, And I'll just say this to you, the listener. If you're weirded out by plural marriage, 
you should be weirded out, right? This is not something we're doing. So- it was the hardest thing that any of them went through. Joseph Smith did not want to do it. It took an angel with a drawn yeah. sword. Yeah. And the angel came and said, Joseph, you either do this or I'll find another prophet. And it was the absolute test of their faith. Brigham Young said he, he was at a funeral. He saw a dead guy in a, in a casket, and he envied the guy in the casket. <laughs> he wished he were there instead of having to go through this. This was, not, this was an agonizing experience for many of them. But they came. They got answers, like I think all of us need to do. We need to wrestle with the fact that God commanded this and that Joseph obeyed. And we can go out and get our own confirmation that this was in fact, the Lord's church. Why that test? I don't know. But I have settled that in my heart, that God did command and they did obey. To you, the listener who is like, I really don't want to get into plural marriage. I don't want to listen to it. Then what would we say to them? So our job is not to reveal every truth, but the reality is as Latter-day Saints, we have to deal with plural marriage. It gets thrown in our face a lot. We have questions asked of us. It's a stumbling block, and we have to learn to deal with it. We have to settle it in our heart. And so what you're about to get is the best that we've got in settling this issue, in helping people wrestle with the challenge of plural marriage. If you are a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, somewhere, somehow, you need to wrestle with the issue of plural marriage. That does not mean you need to accept it and plan to live it. That is not true. But you need to wrestle with the fact that the early members of this church, to some degree, did practice plural marriage. So what Mike and I would like to do is help you settle the issue. If you have questions, there's wonderful websites, there's wonderful resources that we can point you to. We're not going to answer every single question. We're just going to try in general to settle some of the issues and help you in your journey as you settle some of these issues. Spinoza said this. He says, I've made a ceaseless effort not to ridicule, not to bewail, not to scorn human action, but to understand them, to understand these human actions. Uh, And that's what we're going to try to do. We're not here to ridicule or scorn. We're just trying to understand, you know, what happened in the 1800s. I do want to say this. We should not seek to receive revelation that is contrary to what the Lord has revealed through his prophets. The Lord has revealed through his prophet that the practice of plural marriage has ceased in the church. So anyone who advocates the practice of plural marriage today is not a servant of the Lord. Also, Gordon B. Hinckley said this. He says, we build institutes of religion to do three things. Number one, to teach the history of the church. Number two, to teach the doctrine of the church. And three, the practices of the church. What we're talking about today is certainly not the practice, and it's certainly not the doctrine of the church. But historically, this happened. So that being said, Bryce and I are going to talk about something that's very difficult, that's historical. And so sometimes in our defense of it, it may sound like we're advocates of it. And so I want to just make sure that everyone understands Bryce and I are not saying, hey, this is the thing we should be doing, but this is the thing that happened. One of the questions we get is why? Why would God command this? In the Doctrine and Covenants in the 132nd section, verse 63, it reads as follows. They are given unto him to multiply and replenish the earth according to my commandment and to fulfill the promise which was given by my father before the foundation of the world and for their exaltation in the eternal worlds, that they may bear the souls of men, for herein is the work of my father continued, that he may be glorified. I just read a portion of verse 63, but from my reading, at least in this verse, it says this, 
Why? Number one, to multiply and replenish the earth. Two, fulfill the promise. Three, for their exaltation. Four, that they may bear the souls of men. And five, that God may be glorified. Notice that it's a test for both men and women, according to verse 51. Now, let me expand a little bit on that while we're here. Let me show you a pattern. Let let me remind you of the purposes of God. Uh, Maybe big picture, we are... We're trying to become like Heavenly Father. Now, to whom do you give unlimited power? To whom do you think God is going to give omnipotent, unlimited power? And the answer is those who will do with it what God does with it. So one of the things we're here to do is to pass that test. We're here to say, Lord, I will do what you ask me to do. If you give me unlimited, omnipotent power, I will do with it only what you would do with it. So here's this beautiful world that Adam's been given. Adam, you're in charge of this world. It's fresh, it's clean, it's new, it's wonderful, and you're in charge. And oh, by the way, Adam, I want you to take one of these animals and kill it and burn it up on an altar. And Adam had no idea why, but he was faithful to a commandment. His, his faith was tested. Fast forward to Abraham, who has a son that he absolutely loves, and the Lord says, I want you to sacrifice him on the altar. I want you to kill him. I want you to give up your own son. Now, why in the world would God do that? That doesn't seem like the God that we worship. But remember, we're here to prove our loyalty, to say, Lord, if you give me omnipotent power, I will do with it only what you want done with it. And so Abraham says, okay, Lord, if you want me to sacrifice my son, I'll do it. I will. And just as the knife was coming down and he would have killed his son, the Lord said, stop. That is the Lord's pattern to the rich young ruler. He said, go and sell everything that you have and come and give it to the poor and then follow me. That is the Lord's pattern. Yes, we worship a God who loves us and will do everything for us, but he also needs to know where our heart is. And so we need to know that this test is going to be hard and there will be moments, Joseph Smith said, God will feel after you, and he will take hold of you and wrench your very heartstrings. And if you cannot stand it, you're not fit for inheritance in the kingdom of God. So we should not be surprised if a loving Heavenly Father who wants to give us unlimited, omnipotent power needs to test our hearts and to see, are you willing to do what I ask even when it's difficult? Yeah. So here we have a young church, a very young church that is going to carry out his purposes in the latter days, a young church who's going to carry his message to all the world. It should not surprise us, brothers and sisters, if that young church was severely tested. And they were. And that's what verse 51 says of section 132 said, I did it, saith the Lord, to prove you all as I did Abraham. I can't think of anything more difficult. In the 21st section of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord said, he will test our patience and faith. The standard is one man, one wife. But Jacob 2.30 says, for if I will, saith the Lord, raise up seed unto me, I will command my people. Otherwise, they shall hearken unto these things. And these things is one man, one wife. Bryce, talk about how the rule is one man, one wife. That's the rule. I think a lot of people are worried that plural marriage is a secret thing that someday everyone will have to practice. Now, let me be clear. There is an eternal law that we do not currently practice that we will someday. 
and it's called the law of consecration. But here's the thing. From the beginning of time, the Lord has made it known that consecration is a better way, and we will live the law of consecration, and everywhere they can, they have. And so some people think, well, we're supposed to live, you know, we're going to live the law of plural marriage in the millennium, or we're going to live the law of plural marriage in the eternities. But look at where plural marriage was not practiced. Adam did not have multiple wives. He had one wife. Now, if you're the Lord and plural marriage is the standard, if it's the way you're trying to prepare your people for, if it's what you want to accomplish, why not present it everywhere you possibly can like the law of consecration? God does not hide the law of consecration. Everywhere he can, he teaches it. And he doesn't hide the fact that we all need to learn it. So why doesn't the Lord have everyone practice plural marriage if it's the way things are? Now, notice in chapter 3 of Jacob, Jacob 3, 5, Lehi was actually commanded not to practice plural marriage. So why would be th- that be the case? Why would Lehi, who didn't have a government breathing down his shoulders, who didn't have any restrictions, why would Lehi not practice plural marriage if it was the standard? It's not, brothers and sisters, in the heavens. It is the exception. Will anyone practice plural marriage in the heavens? We don't know. The gospel topic essays basically say we have no idea what's going to happen in heaven. We're doing our best down here. So, brothers and sisters, I think we can rest assured to know that it is not the way things are in heaven. It is not God's normal way. It's a rare exception when he commands it. And that's it. It wasn't in the Garden of Eden. There's no sign of it in the city of Enoch. It wasn't in the Book of Mormon in Lehi's day. It does not appear to be the Lord's standard. In fact, the standard seems to be one man, one wife. I like that. And, and just to, to kind of put everybody's minds at ease, I once talked to a sweet sister who said, if I have to share my husband in the eternities in heaven, then that's not a heaven for me. And I I agreed with her. It's been something I've wrestled with. A couple quotes that are helpful, one by Brigham Young in Wilfred Woodruff's journal, February 12, 1870. It says, I spent the day in the council house. He attended the School of the Prophets, Brother John Owen. Speeches were made, Orson Pratt and Rasta Stone spoke. Brigham Young stood up and then said that there would be men saved in the celestial kingdom with one wife and some with many and some with no wives at all. Um, I don't know if that speaks peace to your heart, but that's in Wilford Woodruff's journal. This one is, I like this one a little bit better. This is President Penrose, uh, published in the Improvement Era, said this in response to a letter. The question is, is plural marriage or celestial marriage essential to a fullness of glory in the world to come? And the answer is, celestial marriage is essential to a fullness of glory in the world to come, as explained in the Revelation concerning it. But it is not stated that plural marriage is thus essential. So I really think that's one of those things that we should look at and say, the rule, like Bryce has stated, is one man and one wife. I want to reiterate, it's not a requirement for exaltation. It's good that we know where we are, but what were they thinking? One of the dangers of presentism is we take the way our worldview is and we try to superimpose it on historical uh, narratives. And there are four things that these early saints in the 1800s were thinking about. They write about it in their journals, and this is the way they see things. And so the first one was the importance of following the prophet, which Bryce has talked about. The second thing that's troubling for us sometimes because time has passed is many of them believe that the end was near. And raising up seed unto God fit into this narrative. There are many of them that thought, oh my goodness, is this the end times? 
A third thing was the idea of dynastic or adoptive ties. And this was taught everywhere in the history, but because it's not taught today, it is lost to us culturally. And so the three types of marriage in the Nauvoo period were time-only marriages, the time and eternity marriages, which is kind of how Latter-day Saints think of it today, and then adoptive, dynastic, or eternity-only marriages. The, the fourth thing that they were thinking after dynastic and adoptive ties was this idea that the more wives and children you had, the more glory you had, the more exaltation you had. And that's a very strange thinking to us. But essentially the idea was this, that the more people that are sealed to me, the greater my exaltation. So a really good book that explains this, that's taught from a faithful perspective that I would recommend that you read if you're interested in understanding adoptive ties or dynastic ties is a book by Jennifer Ann Mackley called Wilfred Woodruff's Witness, The Development of Temple Doctrine. It's just so good. The saint's belief was, frankly, if I'm sealed to the prophet, my exaltation is assured. And vice versa, um, as we create these connections, we're bringing the family of Adam back to God. And so these were things that they thought on adoption. Some of this is in Wilfred Woodruff's journal, but essentially the idea was this, that the more people that are sealed to me, the greater my exaltation. And that's very simply stated. Mackley's book really fleshes that out. Today, I, Mike Day, am sealed to my wife and my children and back to my parents. But early on, the more people that are sealed to me, the greater my exaltation. The idea that we have an unbroken chain of children sealed to parents and then parents as children sealed to their parents all the way back to Adam and Eve, that idea wasn't really developed until Wilfred Woodruff. Um, Joseph Smith, when these things were revealed about sealing, he would say to Brigham, Brigham, now go in and prove this. Wilfred Woodruff was the one that really saw and visioned that this tie back to Father Adam and Eve through family lineage. And so early on in the church, when Joseph is having people sealed, uh, we did have parents sealed to children and children to parents, but we also had dynastic ties. So for example, if Bryce and I lived in Nauvoo, Bryce and I are relatively close in age, I could be sealed to Bryce as his son in the eternities. And that was a thing. It sounds strange to us. And so I'm not sharing this with you to make you feel weirded out or to feel like uh, this is some strange thing. We're back to that section one, verse 24, where the Lord's like, I'm speaking to you after your language and revelation comes line upon line. And so dynastic ties, uh, dynastic and adoptive ties was a thing which is a tremendous lesson that God allows us to figure these things out. He speaks to us as we are and lets us figure them out. And we know today that that is not the way it is. You don't need multiple ceilings to have extra glory in the celestial kingdom. But when this was a brand new doctrine, you can't expect them to have figured out every detail. No religion had ever taught anyone about eternal ceilings or eternal families. And this was a new concept. And so one of the things we need to understand in church history is that the Lord allows the saints time to figure these things out. And if they got some things wrong, we can fix that. We can get it right. And the church today has it right. But we shouldn't necessarily condemn anyone who tried and tried to understand and maybe had a false understanding, because that is clearly not a notion we believe today, but we need to at least acknowledge that it's something that they could realistically and reasonably have believed then. 
I can see God in heaven saying, uh, applauding, saying, "Okay, good try. We're moving. We're moving in the right direction." Right. And and you know what? We don't freak out about it when we talk about baptism for the dead. No. Where were they doing them? Right. They're doing them in the Mississippi River. And then God comes out in the, it was like the 124th section and the 128th section where he's like, okay, it's cool that you guys are doing baptism for the dead. Oh, and by the way, if Steve's getting baptized for his grandma, Carol, we're going to quit that. We're going to have Steve baptized for his grandpa. Males for males. But But bless your hearts for trying. You guys are, hey, kudos. He's applauding. Good job. And so we don't really think about it, but because marriage involves intimacy, it just is charged. And another point that yeah. we need to throw in there, I think at the heart of all of this, people want to know that Joseph Smith was an honorable man, yeah. not uh, a guy who's running around seeking many, many women to pleasure himself with. And one thing we need to understand is that marriage for Latter-day Saints has an eternal aspect to it. And a lot of people suppose that Joseph Smith is pursuing sexual interests. He is not. Joseph Smith is pursuing eternal interests because it was a sealing thing. It was, uh, I'm making ties and connections. Joseph was building his family, so to speak, his ties, the number of people who were tied to him in the eternities. And that's a concept that we have to throw in. And even non-Latter-day Saints have to judge Joseph Smith on his beliefs and our system, not necessarily on the world system. It is hard for people in the world to understand why a man would be married to multiple women. And the only conclusion that the worldly people comes to is that it's sexual purposes. And yet ceilings for eternity and creating connections and making families was a much greater interest to these Latter-day Saints than that. It is my testimony with all my soul. Now, I have spent many, many years studying this. I have researched Joseph Smith. I have uh, on my iPad, I have a notebook that has every single wife we think he was sealed to or married and all of the details and who said what and what the husband thought and every single piece of historical evidence that we have. And I can tell you with full confidence, brothers and sisters, that Joseph Smith was an honorable man and that his pursuit of multiple wives has to be taken in light of the doctrine of eternal families, building an eternal family and creating connections that will last throughout the eternities. That marriage marriage was more than an economic understanding between a man and a woman to take care of each other. It was more than a romantic thing. Marriage for the Latter-day Saints is a religious thing and an eternity thing and a family connection thing, and that has to be taken into consideration when we look at plural marriage. Yeah. So Mackley's book's definitely one I would pick up. I would probably put that near the top of the list. There's a bunch of them. Another one that's doing what Bryce is talking about is Samuel Morris Brown in Heaven As It Is On Earth, Joseph Smith and the Early Mormon Conquest of Death. Uh, Brown really talks about what Bryce is saying, where Joseph is establishing these connections and he's developing this eternal family. Think about this. If you join the church in Nauvoo, odds were your parents were against you. So joining the church was a huge deal. Like you're leaving your family. It's almost like that that reference in Ruth, right? Where uh, Ruth says, no, I'm going to go with you and your God will be my God. And I just, every time I read that, the spirit just hits me like, what a challenge that would have been. Well, the saints were in that same boat. Uh, early saints were. But really at its core, polygamy asked the saints to put their faith in the prophet. 
and their, and their faith in the restoration. Was Joseph really a prophet or not? Did prophetic authority persist? Could God truly speak by divine, unmistakable revelation to each and every individual? Not only must they abandon the false doctrines of the sectarians that they left, but they must appear to renounce cherished principles of monogamy, which were viewed as the wellspring of civilization. Some of them did. Now, did all of them? No, but certainly some of them did. Which is very significant because Joseph Smith would often approach a potential wife through someone else. He would extend an invitation and give her time to think about it and ponder it. Joseph Smith would usually extend the invitation through another party, someone else that wouldn't speak passionately or twist his words. And he was told no. There was one woman who said, no, I'm not going to do it. And what's interesting is that woman, after Joseph Smith's death, was sealed to him. After his, So she, she thought about it, she prayed about it, and then after Joseph dies, she comes to the conclusion that it was the right thing. It was very much a, you go figure this out. If Joseph was a prophet, you go get an answer to this, and most of the time, In fact, all of the times that I know is that the participants who said yes, said yes after a confirmation came. This was a wrestle of their heart. And they were asked, this was a test. Do you believe that revelation is coming through Joseph Smith? And they were given time to think about that and to ponder it. I want to reiterate this idea, or actually I want to make this point, and this is really well brought up by Brian and Laura Hales, where they said, of all the women that were ever sealed to Joseph, not one ever once said that he did anything that was ill toward them, or they never accused him of any wrongdoing. I find that fascinating. We don't live this. And so I don't want to seem overzealous for plural marriage, like I've got my pom-poms out and I'm like, yay, plural marriage. It's a tough thing. Um, You know, since you're talking about it, I'm just going to share Mary Elizabeth Rollins Leitner's story. If you've ever heard the story about the, the mobs that come and they disassemble the printing press in Jackson County and uh, this is one of the girls with her sister. They run into the cornfield and they've got the text of the Doctrine and Covenants. They preserve it. That's her. Early on in the 1800s, she says, Joseph was commanded to take me for a wife and I was a thousand miles from him. Joseph got afraid. An angel came to him three times the last time with a drawn sword, Mary says, uh, threatened him with his life. I did not believe. If God told him so, why didn't he come and tell me? The angel told him, well, I should have a witness. So in essence, Joseph comes to her and says, you're to be my wife in the attorneys. Now, Mary uh, Rollins-Leitner is married. She's married to another individual. So Joseph says, you're to be my plural wife. Now, Mary's married to a non-member. His name is Adam. And when Joseph proposes uh, eternal sealing, uh, she says, you know, well, that's great. You've had a witness, but I haven't had a witness. And Joseph says, well, if that's what you want, then that's what you will receive. And so in her own statement, she says this, she says, an angel came to me. It went through me like lightning. I was afraid. Then she says this, I retired to bed and lo, a personage stood in front of the bed looking at me and his clothes were whiter than anything I'd ever seen. I could look at its person, but when I saw its face so bright and more beautiful than any earthly being that could be, and those eyes piercing me through and through, I could not endure it. As it is, I can never forget that face. It seems ever before me. And so Mary Elizabeth Rollins-Leitner was sealed to Joseph for time in all eternity while she retained her marital status with her husband. Now, this is very difficult from a historical perspective, especially if we view this through the lens of presentism. But I want to reiterate what Bryce is saying, that these are dynastic ties. We're building family. We're establishing the kingdom. 
they're working through this. And so the three types of marriage in the Nauvoo period were time-only marriages, the time in eternity marriages, which is kind of how Latter-day Saints think of it today, and then adoptive dynastic or eternity-only marriages. And Elizabeth uh, Leitner was the third option. She was this dynastic tie. Many of these marriages did not involve intimacy. They were marriages of social connection. And so sometimes when people say sensational things about Joseph Smith, about who he was sealed to and and those kinds of things, and Bryce and I in this podcast are not going to get into the weeds of all of those details. There's just not enough time. If you want to read a really good set of books that talk about this, and like Bryce mentioned, websites, they have a website as well. Brian C. and Laura H. Hales have a really good book called Joseph Smith's Polygamy Towards a Better Understanding. It's like a three-volume set. They also have a great website, so if you don't Fantastic ha- website. Yeah. By the way, Hales, we thank you so very much for doing that. Yes, I, I can't thank you enough. The, the price they paid in the history and these kinds of things, they really help flesh out all those details because I, I can just say this, it, it's so easy to deconstruct. You know, my son would get Legos for Christmas, Bryce, and we would spend hours putting together this intricate Lego set, and it would take all morning. You know, it would be like Christmas evening. How long does it take to destroy it? Like like two seconds. It's so easy to destruct and takes time to build. The adversary is a genius at this. He can just throw something out there and make an allegation, and now you, the Latter-day Saint, have to go, well, how much time do I want to spend deconstructing this and understanding the historical narrative? But once again, the big picture is that's how they viewed it. There were time-only marriages, time and attorney marriages, and adoptive dynastic ceilings. And those are taking place in Nauvoo. And yet, for the bulk of the church, they don't even know this is going on. Most of the church goes west not knowing that this is a thing. In fact, in the Gospel Topics essays, and we'll, we'll put this in the show notes, when the saints entered the valley in 1847, 196 men and 521 women had entered into plural marriages. Participants in these early marriages pledged to keep their involvement confidential, though they anticipated a time when it would be publicly acknowledged, which did happen in 1852. But in 47, it was a small amount. One of the questions we get a lot is, well, how many people were involved? And the answer is, well, it depends. According to the Politics of American Religious Identity, quoted in in Flake's text, at present, the the best we can tell is about 20 to 30% of the church in some places practiced it. Lowell Benyon found that the lowest percentage was like 5% in Davis County. In Orderville, it was a little bit higher, like two-thirds, about 15% in Springville. So it just depends, but there were a percentage of Latter-day Saints who lived this 38 years of church history. It was a public thing where this happened. Was it everybody? Certainly not. Did it happen? Yes. A lot of people come up with excuses or reasons, or we did it for this reason, or we did it for that reason, and the reality is none of those really pan out. No, there was not an abundance of women, and no, there wasn't a huge spike in the number of children born into the church. All of those statistics don't bear out that, oh, we did it for this reason, or we did it for that reason. John Widso really does deconstruct this idea that there was this massive surplus of women. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've heard this. Um, and I'm with Bryce. I'm like, I don't, that's not the reason. Another one that I've heard a lot, and I struggle with this one, is the restitution of all things. And here's why. I think that's kind of subjective. There are 613 laws of Torah, and we're certainly not doing those. There's a lot of things in the laws of Torah that uh, never have approached 
um, are consideration. For example, uh, planting wheat next to not planting it next to corn or something like that, or mixing, you know, polyester and cotton. Like these are things in the Torah that we don't apply. So we're not reinstating all 613 laws of Moses. And people are just trying to justify, well, it was a good thing because we did it for this. And the reality is, with all my soul, my testimony is that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints practiced plural marriage for one reason and one reason only, and that's because Heavenly Father commanded it. And I have come to the conclusion that there's two ways you can kind of approach this. You can say, ooh, I can't believe I belong to a church that once practiced plural marriage and be bothered by it. Or you, I don't, maybe it's not or, maybe it's both, but one other option is to say, I am thrilled to belong to a church that will do whatever Heavenly Father asks us to do, including practice plural marriage. It's the same tradition. I am the descendant of a man who was willing to offer his son on an altar because Heavenly Father asked him to do it. I am the descendants of pioneers who left their homes because Heavenly Father asked them to do it. I am honored to be part of a church that asked me to give up two years of my life, two years, two vital years of schooling and young adulthood. I am thrilled to belong to a church that asks us to sacrifice and asks us to do difficult things. This church was asked by Heavenly Father to obey a difficult principle, and we did. And whatever He commands us to do, we will first confirm that it came from Him. I will go out and get my own testimony that it came from Him. I will not blindly follow. I will sustain and I will support, and then I will go get my own witness. And don't you think people join the church not because of polygamy, but in spite of it? They had a spiritual witness, even though this bugged them. Yep. And that's happening today. Yeah. And I'm one of them. I am a member of this church, not because of plural marriage, but in spite of it. Mark my words. I want everyone to know where Bryce Dunford stands. I stand behind Joseph Smith. I testify with all my soul. He was an honorable man. He was a chaste man. He loved God. He was filled with the Spirit. He did what God commanded him. He was not perfect in any way. But I will stand behind that man tooth and nail and testify that he was a prophet. Brothers and sisters, all of us see through a glass darkly. I really, really like this. Richard Hinckley made this comment. He said, some of you struggle with certain doctrines or practices of the church, past or present. They just don't seem to quite fit for you. I say, so what? That's okay. You're young. Be patient. Be persistent. Keep studying them, thinking about them and praying about them. Everybody has questions. I suppose even the prophets themselves have had and had questions, but don't throw them away or don't throw away the jewels you have in the meantime. Hold on to them. Build on them. Did you know that the two greatest intellectual achievements of the first half of the last century, the great theory of relativity and quantum mechanics, are in some points in conflict with each other? They cannot both be right in every detail. These are not my words, but the words of Stephen Hawking, the great British physicist. Yet scientists rely on both of these theories every day to advance scientific knowledge, knowing that someday the differences will be understood, reconciled, and corrected. 
So it is with the gospel and our testimonies, yours and mine. This is not to suggest that the gospel is imperfect, but our understanding of it sometimes is. Like the scientist who uses relativity and quantum mechanics, we do not discard the gospel or our testimony because not every piece fits today. Years ago, a church leader used the following metaphor. Have you ever watched a stonemason build a rock wall? He will sometimes pick up a rock that just doesn't fit anywhere in the niches in the wall, but he doesn't abandon the wall and walk away. No, he simply sets the rock aside and keeps building until a niche appears where it fits and then proceeds until the wall is finished. So perhaps should we not temporarily set aside questions that we continue to struggle with and that we cannot quite seem to answer today, having faith that at some time in the future, a niche will appear in the rock wall of our testimony where they fit perfectly. Don't abandon the rock wall of our testimony just because one or two rocks don't seem to fit. I love Bryce's testimony where he's like, I have a testimony of this. Are there questions? Yeah. I guarantee that if it's not this, it's something. There's a brick in your hand and you're building the wall and I don't know where to put it. And so in the words of Richard Hinckley, I would say, keep building your wall. Don't kick your wall down because a brick doesn't fit. Just keep building your wall. And that's my testimony. And I I don't foresee a time in my life because the way my brain works and the way I think, I've just accepted this, that I'm not going to know all the answers in this life. But I feel the spirit when I take the sacrament. I have a testimony that Joseph saw who he said he saw. I've read the first vision narrative and the spirit speaks to me that that's a reality. The Book of Mormon's true. And yet in the midst of all these things that I spiritually feel and testify to be true, I have all kinds of questions. And I think that's okay. I think that's part of worshiping God. I believe this because would we even have the restoration if it weren't for really good questions? I also think this is really good teaching. And what I mean by that is this. When you're teaching, we should teach in such a way that our listeners can understand, but that they also walk away with questions. Not questions in a negative sense of, oh my gosh, I can't believe this, but questions like, I want more truth, or I want to see how this rock fits in the wall. And so that's what I really love about teaching, and that's what I really love about learning, and frankly, that's what I love about God. He invites us to come to Him, and I have. Like, I am a member of this church, not because of plural marriage, but in spite of it. And there's other things. And you know what? They're not all answered. But I know who Jesus is. And I love the phrase, remember the bread of life sermon? And he tells the people, I'm the bread of life, and they're freaking out. And I'm going to read this verse. It's, in my opinion, one of the sadder verses in all of Scripture. And the way I remember it is because it's John 6, 6, 6, right? John chapter 6, verse 66. It says this, From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Jesus taught something that was hard. And the people were like, I'm out of here. This guy is crazy. I'm not listening to him. And then Jesus in verse 67 turned to the 12 and he says, will you also go away? And Peter said, where would I go? There's nowhere else to go. And I'm, I'm sitting in Peter's chair and what I'm, I'm not the Pope, but I'm sitting in the Peter's chair, meaning I, I totally relate with Peter. Like there's no other there. I'm not going anywhere because Lord, you're it. Some of you are probably going to be disappointed. Like, I thought they were going to talk about this, and I thought they were going to talk about that. 
if you're interested and you want to know more, there's lots more to read. But no matter what you read, you're not going to find the answers to every question you have. You're just not. If you think you can listen to a podcast or read a book and then, oh, all of my concerns are gone and I've settled every single one of those issues, it's just not going to happen. You're going to have to just simply say, was he a prophet or not? Was he called of God? You're going to have to answer those questions. And hopefully our testimonies will resonate with you that Joseph Smith was a prophet, the Book of Mormon is true, and that we march forward as best we can with the light that we have. And with that, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.